0: This is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five Podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, Editor in Chief of One Peter Five, and I'm joined today by an esteemed guest, Father Chad Rippiger. Father Rippiger, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Our viewers and listeners should know who Father Chad Rippiger is, but if you don't know him, uh, he runs the, the censustraditionis.org. The website which holds all of his uh, his audio material it also has all of his books um, these three texts in particular I always recommend to people the trilogy of the magisterium which uh, we might get into in terms of authority of of these texts but I wanted mm. to recommend a very important text that you wrote which is <laughs> which is uh, it's yeah. kind of a textbook but uh, seriously this is and it gets into our topic today Introduction to the Science of Mental Health, uh, which mm. I, I think is a fantastic... I'd love to do an entire podcast with you on that book uh, at another time, but... Um, oh, maybe
1: we can at some point. Well,
0: well God will it. So, uh, Father Father Ripperger, what, uh, what's going on? Anything new with Sensitive or any new projects that you're working on? Anything you'd like to promote before we get into our topic?
1: Um, only two things that really I've been spending most of my time on. And what the first is, is that we actually... Um, Um, Our society is trying to build the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother, which is a group of uh, exorcists, which um, we are trying to. uh, We're working towards establishment, where as far as you can get without going to Rome, and we have kind of paused there for obvious reasons. Um, But we're also trying to build a chapel, so we're working on that. But the other thing that is um, about three months ago, quietly, I launched um, the Census Traditionist Press as a corporation, So all the stuff shifted over to that. And that was primarily to keep as much money out of the hands of the government as possible. So.
0: Certainly a wise move, especially. (laughs) Um, But so before we get into our topic, just wanted to remind everyone, please become a monthly donor of one Peter five. We are a nonprofit organization. We rely on your donations to continue to create this free content for everybody, but we, we are donation based. We're trying to rebuild our, our, um, our donor base. So please, donate you can go to one peter 5com slash donate um so let's get into our topic this is very good news i think because this text is one of the most revered texts of the 20th century moral theology i think um mm-hmm. i've got my oh I don't, I don't have it with it oh here it is i've got the old the old print from roman catholic books right here mm-hmm. um this is the handbook of moral theology by dominic prumer And it's now coming back into print. Uh, Formerly, it was very difficult to find. I just found this randomly at a used bookstore online. Uh, And it's sometimes, you know, like $200 or something. But luckily, now we have a reprint from Sophia Institute Press, the centenary edition, which is only $27. So you can pre-order it. It's going to be available later this month, God willing. And Father Riberger wrote the foreword. To this important text. So we're going to get into why is this text so important. But first, I want to ask and introduce this whole topic. And basically just ask what is what is moral theology as distinct from just general theology? Can you speak at all about the history of moral theology as a separate science? Father mm-hmm. Chad Ripperger? Um,
1: well, moral theology is actually just a branch of, of theology that deals with theology being the study of God, ultimately, but it's the it's the uh, science in relationship to what we can know scientifically about God ultimately, but in relationship to the, uh, moral theology specifically, it's the um, science which studies uh, moral action specifically, and uh, whether when an action is morally good and when it's morally bad. And by moral, we actually mean um, St. Thomas defines moral as that which pertains to reason. So it's what reason can grasp as being right and wrong. So basically what happened is, um, which gets developed in the Middle Ages, which I'll talk about here in just a little bit. But basically, what happens is God structured into our mind an inclination to judge certain things as being right and wrong. Saint Thomas says that can become occluded by sin, but also by um, bad formation, which we're seeing across the board now in our own culture, right? So as as the as sin began became more predominant, people started to think that certain things were okay, etc. And now that the formation um of our children is particularly bad they uh the these in natural inclinations to judge certain things that are right and wrong have been they're going awry so to speak but that that god structured into our mind this process into the intellect the ability to grasp these things so moral theology ultimately is um what we can know by by of um revealed truth that is by revelation and what reason can grasp in relationship to that what has been revealed about what is the moral conduct that god expects in relationship to human beings in order for us to reach him to reach heaven ultimately so what is considered morally right is what reason can grasp is in accord with the natural law which god has designed so moral theology is that branch of theology that studies specifically human behavior insofar as it's related to uh what is right and wrong and how those will lead ultimately to god or deviate from god so that's just moral theology in general The History of Moral Theology could be a book on its own, but um, I think it'd be good to talk a little bit about it because I can put Prumer in the context of this, which might be really helpful for people to understand why he's so important in that context. Historically, of course, the, um, the moral code Most of the natural law, which I just mentioned, is actually codified even in the Old Testament. So, for example, St. Thomas in his summa Contra Gentiles actually argues to the Ten Commandments based upon the natural light of reason. So we can actually know that that what the Ten Commandments are, at least essential content of the Ten Commandments, based purely to the natural light of reason. But human beings, because of our sinfulness, and again, and because of bad formation, which I mentioned, which clouds our ability to judge what's right and wrong, historically after adam and Eve fell we know from the flood and everything men went awry so god had to start revealing to us specifically no this is the form of behavior that you have to have so we have revelation which reveals both in the old testament new testament testament a code of conduct right and so what moral theology did so from that point on once that revelation occurs for about the first um three to four hundred years maybe 600 years during the time of patristics it was more basically a bit of unpacking of what revelation had actually said. It wasn't a systematic science in the strict, in the proper sense because you don't see like a systematic treatment of what's morally right and wrong except for bits and pieces here and there by the fathers such as Irenaeus or St. Augustine and the like. Um, and so there it tends to be more of just kind of an unpacking of parts of revelation in relationship to specific things. It's not until you get to the medieval period that you start to see a synthesis of that what the fathers had said and putting it into a more um, scientific approach and by scientific we mean science is defined as um, knowledge of um, the nature of a thing through its causes and so um, in this particular case you see the scientific approach starting to happen in the medieval periods but by the time you get to St. Thomas where the full synthesis really kind of occurs and then from that there's more unpacking that occurs by some of the um, the uh, theologians, which I'll talk about here in a minute, but it's once you get to Saint Thomas that the whole notion of the natural law, the moral theology, and all that kind of comes together in a synthesis in his suman and in his other writings. So then, um, after Saint Thomas, the that moral theology it doesn't really get called moral theology at the time; it's just considered part of part of theology, even though it's a very specific section and it's treated as a different section in the medieval period. It's not until you get into um, the subsequent part of that. Um, like in the 16, 17, 1800s, it's that's where it really gets kind of treated off as its own separate. This is also the time of St. Alphonsus Liguri who wrote his own moral theology. And that's the time in which you start to see the the theologians, which were the the general, um, those are the theological schools from 1100 to 1750, according to Pius IX. So they they began to, um, it's towards the end of that that they began to um, segment out and treat it as a completely different section, independent of the other theologies. It's still dependent on other parts of Revelation, but they were treating it separately. So St. Alphonsus Liguri on especially. After St. Alphonsus Liguri, what you tend to see is a development of the manual system. And the reason being is, is in St. Thomas, the general method was the Summa method, which is the debate system that was taking place during the medieval period. So you'd have a series of objections and then his response Uh, or his actual answer and then the response to the objections. And then later that gets, um, and you even see that to some degree, but that the method begins to change a little bit and the presentation changes, it changes in St. Alphonse's uh, writings. And then subsequently to that, you start to see the development of the manual systems, which get a lot of bad press. But in point, in fact, the manual systems had a very specific role and they play, they were very important for two reasons. One is, is that they were also a synthesis of a lot of the stuff that had gone before them. And um, so that you'd see in the manual system a highly developed... Uh, understanding, not necessarily of the full reasoning process behind how they concluded something, but at least the basic reasoning process and then the moral conclusion about what was morally right and wrong based upon the entire tradition that had gone before. So it incorporated the natural law, it incorporated St. Thomas, St. Alphonsus, all the Fathers of the Church, so that it actually it was a, a system to which you could hand to somebody, um, especially usually guys in um, the seminary or, or studying in Catholic universities. And it would give them a synopsis, and outline, uh, or a summary of basically the moral structure of how the church understand it, the, its moral teachings. Um, it would also incorporate other things like um, what popes had judged or what the Vatican had said about those certain things. So that by the time you get to the 1800s into the 19 early 1900s, these manuals had become highly developed and they were actually very good. The only... Um, I think the only difficulty that um, some complained about it before the council was, is that if you just read through the manual system, it doesn't necessarily give you the intellectual habit of thinking to where you can, so that if outside the context of, a, of the manuals that you could easily reason your way through it. I think there can be some truth in that, but my experiences is, is that had largely to do with certain circumstances and not the actual manuals themselves. I'll explain what that means. I met men who, um, when I was younger, who had gone through the manual system and being taught through the manual system, who came out thinking like St. Thomas. They they actually did have that ability to think like St. Thomas. So I'm not convinced it was actually part of the moral the manual system that was the problem. I think it's really more of a case of either how it was taught, but also I'll get into this in just a minute. Is there was a collapse that occurred before the council in relationship to moral theology and it was at that time that that the, that particular generation just didn't really care, frankly. And so they just didn't adopt that mindset. And so you get you get guys who would actually who would try to do it, and then would actually get it. So you get to the moral theology, and there's in modernism, and I didn't mean to go on too long, but in modernism, there's a threefold step that occurs in the collapse in in um, that culminates in the collapse of moral theology. The first is the collapse in scriptural studies which occurs in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. This is why the Pontifical Biblical Commission starts putting out a bunch of documentation on dealing with those specific things. Then, so you have that collapse that occurs in scripture. It's shortly after that, so it's it's between 1910 and about 1930 that the collapse in ecclesiology occurs. It's actually, there's precursors before that, but that's when it occurs. But then it's from 1930 to 1950 that there's a collapse in the natural law underpinnings of of moral theology. Now, Pope Benedict actually makes reference to this collapse of the the, uh, moral theology that under the, the natural law that underpins moral theology, but he dates it much later. But if you pay very close attention to the manuals that were coming out um, during the latter part of the 1940s and the 1950s most of them written in Latin if you read a lot of them which I've done because I taught moral theology when you read a lot of them you begin to see that there's a collapse in natural law in, in relationship to moral theology specifically area in the area of the sixth commandment and so and very and very specific things about, how the, particularly how the conjugal act is supposed to be structured in relationship to marriage. There's a collapse that occurs so that certain things are allowed, are said to be allowed to be permitted, even though the Vatican itself had said no. And so you had um, that collapse. The beauty of Prumer was he was writing in the uh, latter part of the 1930s up to the 1950s, that his stuff maintained that proper relationship between the natural law and moral theology so there were some of the manuals did some of the manuals didn't but his was one of them that actually did maintain it um, that connection <clears throat> between natural law and moral theology and so there's a continuum and so he's really one of the few moral theologians that you can say go and read him and he will put you introduce he'll put you in contact with if through his manuals because um, he had two different um, sets of manuals in moral theology one was the longer one which was in Latin and then the, the shorter one which is the one that you, that, they're, that they're publishing now which is very um, it's perfect for the lay people which I'll talk, I can always answer why I think it's better for them but um, but it's it it maintained that continuity of the tradition and so <coughs> even when I was going through the seminary in the fraternity of Saint Peter Krumer was recognized as a standard that you could use to make sure that um, anything that you're addressing in moral theology, he would. You could look at him and know you were getting the straight tradition in relationship to how the church had always understood this. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then also, um, you know that, and it was it was developed. It was based on Saint Alphonsus. It was based on Saint Thomas. And so, um, and his reasoning is very Thomistic. Um, and so he was always very reliable in that regard so he's one of the few that by the time and after the 60s it's just catch-as-catch-can it's just all over the map but at least with him um in this uh when the stuff that he put out you know that you're being put in contact with that whole tradition um sorry we went on a little bit but it gives people a sense of it
0: no this is great i i wanted to let me ask you a few clarifying questions to elaborate on sure. some of the things you said one if we can touch on saint alphonsus because he's he proclaimed a doctor of the church by Pius the ninth and he's, right. i don't know if he's the one who d- makes him doctor of moral theology but i i remember reading a a text by a, a, a it was actually a dominican but he was um promoting some of the new theology but he was just he had an overview in the beginning of moral theology and he literally had one sentence devoted to saint alphonsus and i thought that was quite striking so what is the what is the place of St. Alphonsus? Reading, reading his moral theology seems to be very much a summa. He goes through all the different propositions, all the different opinions. He assigns theological right. notes to every single opinion. Uh, it's very right. detailed. Uh, what is the place of St. Alphonsus as an authority in moral theology?
1: Well, obviously, he is considered the moral doctor of the church. So, in that sense, um, he's, you know, if ultimately, Um, I think I can't remember which Pope has said, you can read St. Alphonsus in relationship to moral theology and always know that you will never be gone in error in relationship to it. So he's, he's a guarantee against error, at least in the area of moral theology. The thing about, uh, I think that there's a bit of history relationship that St. Alphonsus was actually um, very Thomistic. So he presumes that you've read St. Thomas in that. In fact, you can actually see, for example, in the in the section where I talk about how it hit the moral collapse and the moral theology. If you go to his section in that area, you can tell he's basing the entire thing on St. Thomas. But his reasoning process, he presumes you've actually read St. Thomas and you actually understand that. And so his moral theology is kind of taking St. Thomas and then layering it, as you said, looking at all the different opinions. It's a very scholarly and technical work um, in relationship to that. And so in the end, he actually also provides um, you know, conclusions, as you mentioned, about the theological notes, the degree of certitude we have in relationship to these specific things. And so in that particular respect, he was very detailed. And he was, um, as I mentioned, he was very Thomistic. The problem is if people don't have, because I've seen this happen with a few priests, and you actually see this... <clears throat> Kind of happening a little bit before the council, and that's which is why I think part of the reason he was rejected, and it's not the whole reason he was rejected after the council, was that the um, uh, if you didn't read St. Thomas. He can come off as being too rigorous, when in point, in fact, if you actually understand from a Thomistic point of view what he's dealing with, he's just giving greater, he's just giving greater precision to the conclusions that we can know in relationship to St. Thomas, so he's not being overly rigorous, in that sense. (coughs) So, if you don't read St. Thomas. People can become too scrupulous because they don't have that moderation that St. Thomas brings to reading St. Alphonsus and St. Alphonsus. And it's kind of funny because I used to teach parts of the, when I teach moral theology, I would teach parts of it from St. Alphonsus. And quite frankly, I never found the guy to be over the top, as long as you understood the principles that were undergirding what he was saying. But the other part of it is, too, is, is that by the time you get, see, but as I mentioned, the moral theology collapsed in the 40s and 50s in the church, and so did the morals, you know, we call it the greatest generation, but in point, in fact, it was during the gen- greatest generation that a few things happened. One is there was rejection of the disciplines of the church. They just didn't want to maintain them. It's during this generation that actually fornication began to mushroom among pre um, people before they were married. It was considered verboten and you didn't do it. That's when you started to see a mushrooming of that. And that's why they didn't really stop the hippie generation, which were their children. It's also during that generation that you start to see um, certain aspects of the natural law. They don't like it because they consider it too rigorous, but in point in fact, that's what they labeled it, but it's only because they wanted to be engaged in certain aberrant behaviors. The fact, and it's also during that time that you actually see, if you look at the, if you look at actually the history, like for example, of the pedophilia it's a it, in the church. There's a 20 year lag time. So when they get into the seminaries, and the and the problem that you actually see in the seminaries, it's not until about till 20 years later that you begin to see this problem in the actual general life of the church. So it was actually during the 40s and 50s that they started allowing the homosexuals and pedophiles into the church, and that's causes the moral collapse. And that's why you see the problem 20 years later. But there was a series of things that were going on. That natural law undergirding um, is was collapsing during that time frame and it's because of that that they also rejected Saint Alphonsus because Saint Alphonsus rests his moral theology on Saint Thomas which is rested directly on the natural law and so that's why you tend. but in point in fact there is um, nothing in Saint Alphonsus that I've ever read that I thought was a bit over the top or that I thought was unmoderated um, and so that's kind of my my view of it
0: um now getting to some of the objections to manualism you you alluded to if you sort of and as will was saying alphonsus if you sort of take it without the context without the continuity with the tradition you know if somebody got a fast food phd in moral theology and just took a manual out and started reading the manual to the students and he didn't have any of the context and any tradition he might actually make that into a, a, a lack of formation. Um, that's
1: exactly is, right.
0: Is that what, okay. Yeah.
1: That's what I understand. Fact, that That is that is exactly what happened. Okay. In, in large part.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking to Thomas that I trust. They've, they've alluded to. That was some of the dryness that was being criticized at the time of Vatican II uh, because people were just uh, taking the manuals out of their context, or there might be lesser manuals out there that aren't as good as Prumer. Um then right. were there was just a lack of like a, a, a breakdown of this formative, formative culture formative uh, tradition right um so w- what is the you you've gotten you've gotten controversy before father ripperger for some of your comments that were based on father Ripper or on uh prumer right. and you were because prumer summarizes a lot of the conclusions of the manualists that were coming to the fore right. at this time um and you cite prumer now what is the can you speak a, to the magisterial weight of prumer now prumer is not a promulgated document but he's basically making reference to this universal ordinary magisterium he's making reference to the schoolmen right. have you as you alluded to can you right. speak to what would be how, how are we to take this text as a magisterial weight and this authority
1: Um, Well, it's very similar in the sense of um, you had mentioned before in relationship to St. Alphonsus, each individual um, conclusion has to be taken from its, uh, based on its theological certitude, based upon its sources from which it comes. And so the beauty of someone like Prumer is, is he is, first of all, Prumer is a true scholar. There was two problems I think that had kind of occurred. One is a pedagogical thing, which you mentioned before the council, which is why it was so dry and people were going, but also there, as you mentioned, there was also manuals that were being put out that were just simply not as scholarly as say something like Prumer was putting out. Because Prumer is very uh, meticulous to make sure that everything he's saying is based on the, what's going before him. And so that's why I mentioned it was based on St. Thomas, St. Alphonsus, and also the school before, because there was also all sorts of moral manuals even before Prumer, and he's synthesizing all these things and taking them. So as far as the certitude and relationship to it, um, Prumer himself, I think, at, at least in his more technical work, um, in reading the one for the laity, I can't remember exactly, because it's a bit more summarized, but what you're going to get in Prumer is basically... Uh, going to give you the degree of certitude that you have. I mean, how much, it's not necessarily a magisterial thing in the sense that he's not a member of the magisterium, but it does reflect the magisterial's teaching throughout time. It incorporates many of the adjudications that were done by, for example, the Holy Office, um, the popes themselves, uh, and things like that. Um, and so it incorporates all that. So if you read it in Prumer, you're pretty clear, it's pretty clear that you're safe in, in holding to this, again, because he's basing it on St. Alphonsus and St. Thomas and all this. So it's one of those things that people can read it and know, okay, this is what I know the church actually teaches. A lot of times I would I would cite Prumer um, simply because um, Prumer, as I mentioned, did a lot of the synthesis. And so as a result of that, um, I, can, I, I have done in particular cases, actually gone back and looked at all the individual Um, moralists that were basically occurred between 1600 and 1950 just to um, buttress it and give a series of references so but the thing about the beauty about Prumer is he's kind of already done that work in the background you may not necessarily cite them all but he's already done that work and so what you get is that that synthesis from all of these things it's just that sometimes especially today because people have never heard of some of this stuff even though the church had always kind of taught this or this is what the common opinion of theologians was <clears throat> and because of that, um uh, you know, the beauty of primers you can just read them and know, okay, this is what this is what we know was in with what the tradition always held. And um, and we may not have all the individual citations, but you only really need that is if you're really arguing among scholars. But the lay people, what well, they can just look at this and say, okay, this is what we need to know.
0: Yeah, it, it, he does. He he does make reference to at times, as I recall, to certain variant opinions. And there's <laughs> certain opinions that are divergent and more or less haven't figured out a total consensus. Right. So he does bring bring that a little bit. So and 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 you made reference just, just for viewers understand, you made reference earlier. There's so there's a three-volume work in Lat that's never been translated into English, to my knowledge.
1: That's no the, it does not.
0: The that's the moral theology um by Prumer. And that's that's still textbook if you have a seminary that knows latin i know um right but uh but then this handbook is the one this is the one volume set so um i want to ask one more question on the history uh by looking at vatican II. looking at this Mm -hmm. quote from benedict 16th um so this is the from benedict 16th emeritus when he put out this essay after the most recent sexual abuse crisis came to light with mccarrick And he says this regarding what happened (laughs) in Vatican II, and you made reference to this already. He said that, uh, quote, Catholic moral theology suffered a collapse that rendered the church defenseless against these changes in society, referring to the secular revolution. He says this, until the Second Vatican Council, Catholic moral theology was largely founded on natural law, while the sacred scripture was only cited for background and substantiation. In the council's struggle for a new understanding of revelation, the natural law option was largely abandoned, and a moral theology based entirely on the Bible was demanded, end quote. Um, hmm. Now, you mentioned the fact that uh, there is this whole science of natural theology, and this this reminds me of a, a, a citation you make in one of your books, where Paul VI, in fact, seems to misunderstand Dei Verbum, because he seems to state that Dei Verbum was teaching that it is the, it's an apologia for the scripture being the, the final authority when in fact it's scripture and tradition, of course. Right. Um, can you speak at all to Vatican II? Um, is there any truth to wanting more scripture in the manuals? What are your thoughts on this, this further collapse with Vatican II?
1: Um, I think that, um, well, let me say this I think that Pope Benedict's statement. Is, is more of a personification of the impression that people were left with at that time or that worked on, uh, that labored under at that time. Historically, for example, with St. Thomas, the, basically the moral code, which is set out in Revelation, states okay, this is what you can and cannot do, right? And then what happens is you have all this theological development, which gives the natural law underpinning to all these things. So it's really a development based on those things. So it's not like, it's not like somehow or another that scripture is just kind of secondary and anecdotally. It's the thing that undergirds it. And then what we tended to see, for example, in St. Thomas or St. Alphonsus in some of these other moral manuals was the, 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 the development based upon that. So the scripture would say, you know, you can't do X. But then they would they would unpack. And this is why you can't you can't do X, because a lot of times the full reasons behind things aren't necessarily revealed in Scripture. They just tell you certain uh, certain aspects. There's other aspects that are actually not in Scripture, that the natural law that you actually have to unpack it based on the natural law. So, for example, when you look at some of the documentation that John Paul II put out on some of the more modern um, sexual ethical questions or um, on matters of, For example, in vitro fertilization and that type of thing. Well, there's nowhere that in vitro fertilization, my knowledge, is talked about in Scripture. It's it's something you have to unpack. Obviously, the principles are still given to us in Scripture, but you have to unpack those things. And so um, I think that what happened was, is that there was a lack of understanding before the council, which I think, so I think that Benedict is correct in the personification of what people were thinking, it doesn't mean that that was incongruent with reality in the sense that scripture or, or even the tradition was just kind of secondary. It was the thing that undergirded it, but it was the reasoning process because the, the church had developed its understanding based on scripture and understanding its development as to the why, the various aspects of it. And so that was what was tended to be presented in the moral manuals was the full development rather than just basing it just on scripture. Um, I do think that there can be a place for bringing more stuff into the, from scripture into the discussion to show you know, that this is what scripture says, this is why we know it, etc. So uh, I'm not necessarily against obviously bringing in scripture, but I don't think that um, it's the type of thing that um, there was like this quasi-divorce between what was in scripture and then what was kind of going on theologically, even though they might've lined up, you know, I don't think that that's especially when you see the more technical writers um, in, or the more academic writers in that, during that time of the theologians, they were, the scripture was very much in the thick of it.
0: Yeah. When you read St. Alphonsus, he's just quoting Habakkuk and Nahum and, you know, exactly. all, the whole scripture. I mean, these, these men were totally versed in scripture, but again, if you have that problem of these, Uh, bad professors before the council or just aren't really versed in scripture in the first place, then you are going to create that problem. Um, One of the great things about this new edition is that it's adding a lot of citations that correspond with um, the Tridentine Catechism as well as um, Denziger. Um, What is your evaluation of the moral theology as contained in the new catechism? As, as we know, as viewers know, that that's just one of the many catechisms out there, obviously. Um, how do you evaluate the moral theology of the catechism promulgated by John Paul II?
1: Um, <clears throat> in substance, it's okay, but I think there's two, I have two problems with it. The first is uh, lack of precision in terminology and in forms of expression. So it's 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 the it's actually my general complaint about modernism in general. It ten, its tendency is towards lack of precision. I think it gets, gets, obviously it gets 99% of things right, but there are some places where the lack of precision has actually caused some difficulties theologically. Um, Usually these are discussions that are being had um, privately among theologians. So, for example, when the catechism first came out, the definition of um, masturbation actually included self-simulation for the sake of pleasure. Well, the propter voluntatum, which is the Latin phrase which they put in there for the sake of pleasure was never part of the definition. And so then um, of of it. And so it degenerated into a lot of infighting among theologians about. Um, well, does that mean if you do it not for pleasure, but you do it for some other reason that it's morally justified, whereas <coughs> historically it was always considered in say that is in itself, disorder, regardless of the intention or what have you. So the inclusion of that intention was a problematic so there was a lot of um, so there was lack of precision. The second thing is, is that and it's kind of a <clears throat> kind of a general Criticism—it's not in all documents, but it's a lot of the criticism I have. Just documents in general after Vatican II is just the this the the manner of expression is just lacks clarity. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sure why I'm uh, coughing so much, but it just lacks clarity. And so this is one of the things that uh, you see in the um, in the new Catechism is just a lack of crispness and clarity in the forms of expression.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure many viewers would agree with that. Um, one of the most conspicuous things that I find to be absent from the new catechism is the duties of husband and wife. And it's one of the most, yes. one of the most conspicuous thing, because it's something that relates to most of us. Um, right. And I love how Prumer lays it out. It's very, very simple, very concise. Uh, it just says, so this is reading from my copy. This is that old version number 463 and it just says that there are some obligations between husband and wife that are mutual they're totally equal you know egalitarian in that sense which is mutual love rendering the marital debt life in common and then the husband is obliged to be head of the family provide for wife and children wife is obliged to show due obedience to her husband pay careful attention to the home and the education of children I think the the language of rights and duties seems to have been greatly abandoned because perhaps a a misunderstanding, a misreading of Alphonsus out of contents, too rigorous, you know, we don't like duties and rights or something. But tell us about some of the the ways that laity can use Prumer. Because to me, reading Prumer has really helped me just get some of the basics.
1: Yeah, well, that's exactly it. In in fact, what Prumer is outlining there is uh, what the church has always said. (laughs) But I mean, historically, what happened was is that Communism. When they said Russia will spread its errors, it wasn't just in relationship to communism in governments. It was even in the church's own thinking. I mean, if you look at uh, Vladimir uh, Lenin's inter- um, uh, interview with uh, Clara Zenkin, it's yeah. very clear that he's basically destroying the entire roles of men and women in that process. And he's denigrating the, the true honor, the nobility of the uh, the wife's role within the family and raising the children. He's denigrating all of that. And so a lot of the feminist thinking has infiltrated even the church's thinking. And so I think they're afraid, or even if it hasn't infiltrated, they're afraid to make it very clear, well, these are what the distinctive roles are. And I think that's the beauty of Prumer is, is that um, just with clarity, he just lays it out. Okay, this is what you can and cannot do. This is what your obligations are. This is what they aren't. Um, and I think that, Uh, I think one of the biggest advantages of Prumer, too, is is something which I've made advantage of, which you've kind of referenced, at least obliquely, and that is this, that there are things that most modern Catholics do not understand about what is morally right and wrong or what the church has always taught in relationship to a particular thing, like, for example, the marital debt, which you just mentioned. They just they've never been taught it. It's not has not been preached for the last 50 years. And so there's basic information that even Catholics who might even consider themselves fairly well educated may not even know, you know, that this is no, 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 this is what the church has already said, or that this is what the saints had always said, etc, in relationship to something. So it provides, you know, if a a layman is actually able to read through that, they're going to have a pretty clear vision of two things, which I think is really good. One is um, the the beauty of Prumer is he not only deals with what's morally right and wrong and that these and so you'll get the the basics, but he also lays it out in the context of the virtues. So you'll start getting a sense of what the virtues are, in all of this process too. You know what virtues you're developing when you when you when you're you know uh, being just in this particular case, et cetera. So I think it's uh, that that's one of the other advantages, is you know historically. Moral theologies were actually broken down into two different kinds of moral theology texts, those which talked about um, sin, what was morally right in relationship to the Ten Commandments, and then those which were morally right and wrong in relationship to the virtues. And in, the, in a truly Thomistic style, Prumer follows the one of, um, he doesn't. it's not that they're against, that this is against the commandments, but also every sin that we commit is against a particular virtue, etc. And so you learn a lot about that in the process too.
0: Yeah, that's definitely been something with the with the virtues of how he, how he lays it out um, with the commandments and the virtues, and then goes into the sacraments. Um, let's get into more of the practicals and some of the nitty gritty of this. Uh, can sure. you explain the the three fonts of the moral act you, you you wrote? I think it was your dissertation, if I recall. It's the I do, Joe. Yeah. The integral good. Tell us about that.
1: Um. Yeah, okay. So basically, the three fonts of the moral act, which is usually what most moralists uh, will start out with, because you have to break it down. And well, these are the things that have to be analyzed morally to to determine whether they're right or wrong. So there's two components to it. The first is the fonts themselves. So the fonts are that out of which a moral act arises, and they're the object of the moral act. That's uh, basically what you're doing. So like, for example, um, in the act of stealing, you know, you're taking that you're taking the woman's purse, you're stealing a purse that doesn't belong to you. The second one is the intention. Why are you doing it? Well, because I want to basically pay um, John over here uh, the debt that I owe. Or there might be different reasons as to why your intentions behind it. And then the, one, the third one is the circumstances. That is why, why or the, the surroundings or the, um, the St. Thomas calls the accidentalia. It's the, the accidentals around which this is actually occurring. So this is the who, what, where, when, etc. So those are <clears throat> the circumstances which surround it. And so uh Saint Alphonsus follows or uh Prumer uh, follows Saint Thomas and Saint Alphonsus for that matter, Saint Thomas very closely in that regard about the fonts, um, the the different circumstances, the objects of the moral act, and the um the intention he follows Saint Thomas very closely in that. Those three things, so it's out of those which determine what I'm doing is morally right or wrong. And so um, St. Thomas, actually the entire moral tradition, but St. Thomas says, if there's, and then Prumer picks this up, if there's one of those fonts that is, um, that is due or that is lacking and that needs to be or that is morally bad, then it renders the whole action that I'm doing bad. So, for example, he gave, they always give the example of giving alms. You know, giving alms is a good thing. That's the object of the moral act, and it might be done in the due circumstances. I'm doing it at church or doing it to somebody who's poor, etc. But then, if I do it for vain so the people will look at me and praise me. Well, in that particular case, that vain glory renders giving those alms bad, and so that's the principle of the integral good, which is, is um, formulated as uh, the good is from an integral cause, evil from any defect whatsoever. So, integral cause basically means all of the fonts, the whole thing has to be good for your moral act to be good. Whereas the if there's just one of those lacking, that is, there's a if there's a defect in any one of those, then it is rendered morally bad. And this is something that has also collapsed even in moral theology, even recently, because you'll see people that, um, you know, it's the whole problem of ends just it's the, the principle of good is exactly why the ends don't justify the means. So if the means um, are evil but the end is good it still doesn't meet the the requirements of the principle of integrity, and so it's bad and so that's one of the um that's one of the things so that's one of the beauties of of uh prumer is that he's very Thomistic in that regard but it gives a lot of clarity
0: excellent now here's another moral subject that's very important to understand that i, what I found prumer so exacting on and that is conscience Yes. He distinguishes that there, there is actually a Catholic teaching on conscience. It's yeah. not just for the modernists. Uh, can you break down some of the basics of what is the true Catholic teaching on conscience?
1: Well, I mean, basically, the a true conscience is actually one which is, uh, it has two components, ultimately. But it's it's that which is in congruity with the natural law or what the church has always taught is morally right and wrong. So a properly formed conscience is that which judges well, first of all, conscience is just an act of the intellect by which I judge whether something's morally right or wrong. So it's, it's whenever I judge something right that the church has said is right, and when I judge something wrong that the church has said is, is wrong. And so it's right conscience in that regard. But then also there's sensitive conscience in the sense of there has to be a means where you don't get you know too over the top and judging something's wrong when it's not, but then also at the same time not having a lax conscience. So he goes into um, different kinds of consciences in that particular um, thing and so that there is an actual, um, they used to call it a delicate conscience or a sensitive conscience, but it's one in which is, is morally uh, the upright conscience. And so that's ultimately what we want to get get to. Um, scrupulosity, for example, is often um, a conscience that is too strict or that there's something, uh, not judging things that are morally right or they're judging things inaccurately. In um, he also goes into the different kinds of consciences like lax, lax conscience, um, uh, and there's the tuturist positions, there's all different kinds of things that can determine how what you determine in relationship to your conscience. So he goes into the different kinds of conscience, which is actually very helpful for people to see where they need to find, strike the proper balance.
0: Yeah, I, I found and, and he even gives uh, tips on overcoming, I remember the section on scrupulosity He gives a few tips and yeah. overcoming scruples is great. Uh, I want to read this. Sec- this is an interesting point he makes. He says, quote, this is number 139. Everyone is obliged to follow his conscience, whether it commands or forbids some action, not only when it is true, but also when it is in invincible error. So he distinguishes between a a vincible error, which would be you haven't taken the due diligence to form your own conscience. So that's your your, your own fault. Uh, But then he does say an invincible error. So he gives this example. He says a person who is convinced that he ought to tell a lie in order to save his friend from danger is bound to tell that lie in so doing, he does not commit a formal sin. So he's totally ignorant of this fact, but he's doing it in conscience. And so in that sense, he's not culpable formally, even though he's materially committed a sin. What Can you speak at all to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, That's that's about as clear as it gets, right? I mean, it it basically boils down to, well, it basically, and this is something which is really important, is that we have an obligation to follow our conscience. What does that mean? We have an obligation to always follow our intellectual judgment about what we think is the morally right thing to do. That's essential what's being said there, right? So when we say we have obligation to follow our conscience, it means, well, I have an obligation to do what I think is the correct thing right and so and this is something that binds us uh, as part of the natural law it binds us I think anybody would recognize yeah you should always do what you think is the right thing to do and you should never do what your conscience says is the wrong thing to do so in relationship to the rightly formed conscience it's not an issue you just always follow your conscience in that respect in respect because it's incongruity with, with the natural law and with the with revelation and with the invincible invincible basically means it cannot be overcome so the person doesn't know or they're not capable of recognizing or even knowing that they're their conscience is wrong. And so they still have to follow what they think is right. It's the invincible ignorance guy. That's the guy who he knows that his conscience could, may or may not be correct. And that means that he hasn't done due diligence. And so as a result of that, if he commits um, a material sin, not knowing that it's wrong, but he should have known better or he could have known better, then he's culpable for it. Which is important because a a lot of times today, people just think, you know, I just do whatever and then I'm okay, you know.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times it's a distinction between something that's publicly known to all and publicly promulgated as wrong, for example, abortion. Um, right. you can't invoke your conscience against that. Um but right. when when you're following your conscience a lot of times it's like when when it's it's this specific private situation that's known only to you may, mainly and there's all these different factors that are going on in this one situation. Right. That's when your conscience is really supposed to come into play, but with that note, I wanted to bring up lying, as we talked mentioned just lying, because this yeah. is what I mentioned to you before um, privately, um, and that is the situation of World War II when there were forged documents of to save Jews from the Nazis. Um, so it, it's t- it's alleged. I'm not sure if how much Pius XII signed off on this personally, but it was certainly done in his name, as I understand it, in Rome after the Nazis took Rome. They forged documents. That were uh, baptismal certificates for all these Jews to save them from the Nazis. Can you break down why is lying intrinsically evil? What is sort of an allowed mental reservation, and then how do you evaluate these these sort of instances of fraud in World War Two?
1: Yeah, it's. Um... Well, first of all, Promer tends to follow um, the schemistic understanding about um, lying, which is basically St. Thomas says in the Summa, which is, again, you see this in the moral theology text after him. That um, Basically, what it boils down to is, is that if you look at the nature of the faculty of speech, it's ultimately designed to convey the truth, which is known in the intellect. So that's its structure by the natural law that it's designed. It's not designed to um, to, re- to say something contrary to what's in our intellect. It's actually designed to speak what is truly in our intellect. So what in lying, St. Thomas says, is that it's actually contrary to the natural law because it's against the very nature of speech to t- say something that is um, contrary to what we know is true. In other words, it's contrary to the very way that God structured us to think and to speak. <coughs> so that being the case, What happens is is that anytime we lie, so the definition of a lie is um, saying the false in order to deceive. So it's the saying of the false, St. Thomas says, the deception, you can actually have deception under certain circumstances, which could be morally justified. (coughs) So if you have a justifying condition then technically speaking, deceiving somebody is not necessarily bad. So for example, in mental reservation, which you just mentioned, you're actually in a true mental reservation, you're actually saying something that's materially true. So if somebody comes and says, do you have any Jews in this house? And I say, I don't have any here referring to the porch, right? It's one of the examples that's often given um, is you're saying what's materially true. I don't have any Jews on the porch, right? And the deception is justified because St. Thomas says the, the, the falsity in the person's intellect, is a natural evil, but the natural evil, and normally if if you don't have a justifying condition, that's bad, right? But if you have a justifying condition, the fact that the person suffers that natural evil is the result ultimately of their own disorder. So in the end, in this particular case, because they're trying to kill the Jews, in that particular case, you would have um, the the deception would actually be justified morally because of the fact that you're trying, there's a proportion between that and what you're trying to do, which is save the lives of the Jews. So um, in that particular case, it's not the deception where the problem is, the deception, the, the real problem, so deception can be either justified or non justified. The real problem is, is whether you're saying something that's true or not. So he says you can't, in mental reservations, he actually uses a different term. The mental reservation is the term that the Jesuits gave to it later, which is the legitimate use. But St. Thomas calls it simulation versus dissimulation. Simulation is when you actually do something or say something which is false in order to deceive. Whereas dissimulation is when you actually say the true in order to deceive. And he said, dissimulation, saying, because which he, he gets that term from St. Saint, uh, Saint Augustine, dissimulation. He says, dissimulation can be justified if the um, deception, there's a proportionate reason for the deception. So in that particular case, then in, you know, you can say something that's true to deceive somebody if you have a legitimate reason. So I tell teenagers, for example, you don't have a legitimate reason to lie to your parents or to, you know, to say to deceive your parents, right. If they're asking where you're going, you have to tell them the truth, but on this particular case, You know, and you could legitimately deceive the Nazis in order to keep them from um, killing the Jews, because obviously the life of the Jews is proportionate to this guy having falsity. So in his in his intellect, you just can't say what's materially false, because if you do that, then you're basically it's abusive of your faculty of speech. And that's why St. Thomas says the moral tradition pretty much follows that. Prumer tends to follow that. And that's why um, lying is never considered justified, because it's always considered abusive of the of the of the faculty based on the natural law of what our intellect and faculty of speech was designed to do. And so that's why, for example, in the case of people that some people do ask me that from time to time, but what about the fact that they were forging documents? Technically speaking, that's not lying. It's actually a form of fraud. So the difference is is that lying is you say the false in order to deceive, whereas fraud is you do the false in order to receive, to deceive. And so this is a case of what you're, force, you're falsifying documents. You know, in a relationship to um, the Vatican doing it before, I mean, I can understand the intention behind it, but this is, again, a case of where the ends don't justify the means. And I suspect that it was probably, I mean, I, I've studied it to some degree. It's, it is hard to know exactly how much Pius the Twelfth actually knew, and whether he signed off on it, or whether he just signed off on it generically, like do whatever you need to do to save these people. It could have been something like that, and then from that they said, well, he said it was okay, kind of thing. But anyway, that being said, um, I'm one of those people that uh, tends to think that. It was, uh, they did actually commit moral evils in this particular case and they should not have done it. I think they should have been a little bit more creative and figured out other ways to try and deceive the Nazis in relationship to these things. Um, You know, maybe it's to put out certain kinds of documentation where the documentation is actually true, but the Nazis would easily be deceived. You know, that type of thing. Mm,
0: Okay, excellent. So are you alluding to the, are there good moralists out there who would justify this fraud and say that it was a a proportionate, you know you could do evil but you couldn't say evil in this case uh is that an Um, opinion out there
1: uh i'll be honest with you the only guys that tend to justify this type of stuff are the ones who either don't follow the natural law or they don't accept the the natural that the faculty of speech is structured by the natural law or that um they're kind of squeamish and they don't want to think that you know, maybe some Jews would die because you were telling the truth of everything. So I think there's some guys, I mean, I think there's a difference between a good moralist who's good by intention. I think there's a lot of those guys out there that would say, well, it was justified. Um, but if you're talking about a good moralist in the sense of someone who's adhering to the moral principles, they all tend to fall upon the idea that no, it was they, there was, mm. you know, dis, disorder being done there and that there, sh, there should have been some other method, but that should have okay. been derived.
0: Okay, fair enough. Well, let me get to a few of the questions that came in. Um, I have one question from uh, M Proximus who says, um, can you speak to, uh, he, he's, he's saying that you once addressed how, quote unquote, feeling bad about sins committed is not even imperfect contrition. Can you speak to what is necessary for even imperfect? Why is feeling bad not enough?
1: Uh, because the, the imperfect contrition actually has to be in the will. So the emotions, <clears throat> the fact that I might emotionally feel bad doesn't necessarily, and I, I should say that a lot of people just on a psychological level because they feel bad, then their will usually kind of follows their emotions anyway. So it's usually probably not too much of an issue, but it really has to do with on the side of the will that the will has to recognize or accept that what it's done is evil It's not perfect contrition in the sense that it's feeling bad entirely because the difference between perfect and imperfect contrition is is that perfect contrition is done purely because of the fact that you have offended God and you're sorry because you've offended him. So it's based purely on that role. Whereas we can have imperfect contrition, which is I feel bad because of the fact that I've done something. So you can have natural motives for imperfect contrition in the sense of like, I feel bad because I've actually done... Um, you know, I've I've rendered myself imperfect, I've acted bad, we feel bad when we act bad. It can also be from the point of view of I don't want to go to hell. Obviously, to be able to feel even imperfect contrition, however, is um, requires grace. So even to feel bad on uh, that I've done something bad on a natural level even requires a certain amount of grace. That is the feeling that by here we mean imperfect contrition, the difference between sorrow in the will at some evil and actually uh, the contrition which is ordered towards purpose of amendment of life so demons all the time they're they're sorry about in their will about their sin they have no purpose of amendment right and so here we're talking about uh, imperfect contrition which actually still okay I'm going to get my act together so there is that's that the fact that they have purpose of amendment which is an indicator that there's grace it's actually present but the feelings um the feelings don't suffice for imperfect contrition it still has to be in the will even though they can aid that process but they can also, um, but they can't be the sole motivation for it.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, it's very helpful. Yeah. Um, Prumer has a whole section on contrition versus attrition, should, going into right. all the different aspects of it. Uh, I'm right. just amazed at how many distinctions and different definitions. He's got these little, quaint little definitions of everything. This is very, very helpful. Yeah. Um, Michael McElroy says, What kind of information will someone who read a few manuals lack? compared to someone who studied moral theology at a university now this this brings up uh, a, a story I, I remember a priest asking me saying wow i wish there was a manual for confession because <laughs> he said that is his moral theology all they read was um Henri de lubac in their moral theology oh, yeah. and i said well there happens to be a manual it's called prumer and uh so i, I don't really know how many universities even have something like this prumer or even have latin in the first place um so how would you father ripperger how would you say that someone would uh lack you know if they went to the university and studied moral theology or just studied prumer
1: i think the only difference is is that the Primer, like i said prumer is going to give you the shorthand reason as to why this is morally right or wrong He's not going to go into full depth be- only because if he did, it would be four volumes long like St. Alphonsus's, which is, you know, that thick each one. And it's, it's in order to provide um, the person with the outline. The other thing is, as a pedagogical text, it's implied that the professor that's using it in, in, the, in the classroom setting is going to give you the full reasons why behind the scenes. It's the same thing with the Summa. So, for example, in the Summa, the Summa is the same as Summa is a form of a manual in a certain sense. Even though people think, man, there's a lot of information in here, actually, there's all sorts of stuff that's missing in there. So, for example, the fact that the, um, the angels actually have three categories of natural inclination, just like human beings, is actually in his discussion in the um, Disputed Questions or not dispute the question, on the um, Peter Lombard sentences. It's, that's where he just discusses it there. So if you read there, all sorts of psychological stuff comes out about the angels that is completely lacking in the Summa. The point being is, is that the Summa was a teaching text and it's the same thing with this. So there, it's implied that there's going to be someone who's going to fill it in for you. So that's what you're going to get at the university level, even if they use a manual. They're going to give you a lot more of that background and filling in the, the, the reasons why this is the case. Whereas, um, with a, If you just hand somebody and say, here, this will give you the basic outline, that's what most lay people need, and a lot of the priests that are coming out now who don't have a moral um, a background, you can do that exactly that. Say, here, read Prumer, this will give you at least the beginnings, and then you can just fill in the gaps in your knowledge when they come up or when you, need, when you need to, or you recognize I need to fill out this particular aspect, but at least he gives you an outline and a structure so that you have the basics, as you mentioned before. Um, So there's, I think that's one of the big advantages to using Prumer uh, in relationship to that. Obviously, if you're studying like when I used to teach it at the um, uh, Moral Theology, when I used to teach it for the Fraternity of St. Peter, we would actually go, you know, question by question very slowly through But we would be bringing Prumer in a lot of times in order to give the subsequent development and discussion of the situation, or in certain areas where St. Thomas just didn't have an address because it it wasn't really an issue in that day. Um, The other thing is, too, is is that uh, one of the things that happens with um, St. Alphonsus and on, but you see this particular in Prumer, is, and I, I didn't really realize how important this section was until I got older. When I first looked at it, I'm like, I don't know why you need to know about, you know, that there's 21 different forms of contract. You know, I don't know why you need to know all that. But then then when, when you're dealing with businessmen who come into you and say, hey, this is what's going on, then you gotta go and look it up, right? So it actually makes sense as to why there, or even the fact that marriage is a contract. Well, it's a specific, very specific form of a contract. It's not like a business contract, right? So there's all this stuff. So you actually see why there's, and this gives, uh, gives a lot of background. So it's really helpful to give the priest a basic overview, especially these guys coming out who don't feel that it's adequate. Just read this. It'll give you the basic overview. Then you can fill out the stuff later. By the way, if they actually want to know a really good manual relationship to confessing or the confession itself, you can, they can either read the um, uh, Praxis of by St. Alphonsus, which is the, um, uh, the praxis for the confessors. Um, But the other thing is, too, is is that they can also read, there was a book by Halligan, you have to get the 1962 version, do not get the 1980 version, but the 1962 version, just called administration of the sacraments, you can read that section, it's 130 pages long on how to hear confessions. So if you've got Prumer, and you got that, you're pretty good to go in a confessional. Excellent.
0: Okay, so yes, uh, all the priests listening, uh, look up those books. One more technical question. uh, And that is about um, sacramentals um someone asks the application of holy water and blessed or exercise salt may a layman who has no ownership authority exclusive use of something uh or someone use these power of sacramentals so i think he's asking can you use holy water on um you know someone who's not in your household or something that doesn't belong to you does that still work if you don't own it or have jurisdiction over it
1: uh Actually, they can, (laughs) I just put out a book called Dominion, which goes into all those nooks and crannies, what you can and cannot do. Um, But it's actually, to answer the question is, unless you have authority over the thing, you can't. Ironically, priests can use it, but the layman, actually, he needs to have authority over it. The best thing to do is, if you don't have authority over it, is to um, consign it to Our Lady or consecrate it to Our Lady and then let her take care of it.
0: Excellent. Always, always a good plan. Final question for you, for the um, Do you have any tips for laymen who buy the text? What, sh- how should they approach this text to make it helpful for their their lives as Catholics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to do is is that don't expect to read the whole thing in a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that if you really want to take your time going through, making sure you understand it, because as you as you read it, as you know it. The first section each subsequent section tends to build on the prior section in large part not absolutely but in large part so they just want to make sure that they take the time and make sure that they understand those particular that each section take their time through it um and then you know that way you know it, it should be something which you read a little bit each day just so that you can synthesize it moral theology is like any other science in the sense that, um, in, in this, in the Thomistic and Aristotelian sense, is that it's a, it's a habit of mind that you have to develop. So as you're reading it slowly and you're thinking about it, rather than just trying to plow through it, if you're just reading it slowly and thinking about it, you'll start to develop that habit of thinking so that as you go through it, by the time you get done, you'll actually have that um, intellectual habits that are necessary to be able to think um, on that level. And then you can actually study things that are a little bit more detailed. That's so, excellent.
0: Yeah, I, I've really found it helpful to just, um, I remember sitting in a car once and and my friend was wondering about drunkenness. So we just looked up Prumer, went to the index, we found drunkenness, we turned to the section on drunkenness, and he talked all about drunkenness and how you know you, you could you could get drunk if you have no est- anesthetic to amputate your leg. Right. that would be the example he gives you know yeah. you could you could drink a bunch of whiskey so you're totally drunk and then the guy could amputate your leg that's like the one time it would be justified right, otherwise exactly. not So <laughs> no, you know it's 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 just really great it's very practical it, it goes into yeah. all, so many different helpful things for catholics so it's really uh, a, a great benefit great good news for um restoring so much of the tradition is is getting this manual out so you can pre-order the manual at the link below it's uh 20 it's like 27.95 or something so and then that'll be out later this month god willing and uh, a great thing to buy new priests if you have priests in your diocese who just been ordained buy them a copy of this they probably will not we're not unless they went to a great seminary that was father ripperger used to teach at um they may have not been exposed to prumer so this is a great thing to buy a priest um, buy a new father. Buy buy it for yourself. Buy yourself two copies. So take a look at it. Uh, father Rebegar, thanks so much for your time today. Can you send us off with
1: a blessing? I sure can. Benedict nipotentis patri et fili et spiritual scenarios semper. Amen. Amen.